Hello, it's Patrick with the Film Editing Podcast at filmediting.com. Welcome back. If you haven't listened to the show before, what we do here is we interview film editors, film assistants, directors, really anyone who's creative in the process of filmmaking. If you have any questions for us, you can call us on the comment line at 206-202-AVID. That's 206-202-2843. You can also email me at patrick at filmediting.com. Thanks to everyone who's put their pin in the Frapper map. If you haven't done so yet, go to the podcast page. There's a link there for Frapper. It'll take you to the map. you get to see uh, where our listeners are from. There's about 64 or so pins in there now. Also, while you're there on the podcast page, if you can go to Podcast Alley and vote for us, that's much appreciated. It really helps us get some visibility and helps bring more people to the show. I have an idea to get more people involved in the show and open up the questioning to all you listeners. So if you're interested in that, email me at patrickatfilmediting.com with your email address. And what I'll try to do is a week or two before I do the interview, I'll email you who the guest will be and you guys can send me back questions for that person. And don't worry, I'm not going to give your email address out to anyone. Our interview today is with editor Deborah Neal Fisher. She cut... Fry Green Tomatoes, Up Close and Personal, and Austin Powers, to name a few. So with no further ado, here's our interview. So today, we've got a special guest here. I'm actually at the home of Deborah Neal Fisher. Hi. How's it going? Good. In interest of full disclosure, you'll notice that our credits are very similar because we've worked together for quite a while. Over uh, 10 years. Yes. Yeah, so uh, I'll try to pretend like I you know, don't know the answer to some of these questions, even though I may, I may know the answer. You've never met me before. I, I'll, I'll pretend like it's totally fresh. Okay. Make sure you laugh at the stuff you already know what's coming. <laughs> Where'd you grow up? I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. I'm a valley girl. I went to an all-girls high school, but we had a filmmaking class at the all-boys high school. And I, was, in the interest <laughs> of looking for boys, I went and took the class. <laughs> However, while there, I became very interested in filmmaking, and I got my own little... Super 8 movie camera. And I started to make little homemade Super 8 movies. That's funny. I went to a Catholic all-boy high school, and we had an all-girl high school that we did stuff with. But we didn't have... Oh, that's why we get along so well. Yeah. (laughs) We have the same (laughs) hang-ups. But see, we didn't have have film classes. We had bowling. That's what we did as a group. Oh. It's very exciting. You know, Catholic high schools. (laughs) I was at the all-girls Episcopal school. Oh, close. (laughs) Okay, so then when it came time to choose a major for college and a college, I decided to apply to University of Southern California and put down filmmaking or film production as my major. Well, when you apply to the University of Southern California film production, it's very difficult to get in, and the university would like to know that you're very serious about filmmaking. So they called me in for a meeting with the dean, And they said to me, you probably don't want to put this down as your major because it's very hard to get in and and we're not sure you're going to get in. And I said, I don't care. I'll take my chances. And they said, you probably want a backup major. And I said, no, I want to be in film production at USC. Well, I must have convinced them with my determination because I did get into the uh, program and then went for undergraduate school and got an undergraduate degree, a BA in film production at USC. They're pretty hardcore with USC with as far as getting into the film school. It's difficult. There's a lot of applicants, and they need to really siphon through those. And I don't really understand the whole process of how they pick people, but I was lucky enough that no one else from my school, a graduating class of 20 girls, was applying. So that helped also. Mm. So do you think that 
film school is even a good place to start for people that want to get into filmmaking nowadays? Well, um, there are a lot of other options on the internet. You can make movies and post them on YouTube and and um, various other um, places to expose yourself with your films. However, um, having taught recently at USC, I think that what the students are learning, besides making films to show people, which they all want to do, they're learning filmmaking, they're learning the history of films, they're learning um, from professionals in the industry. And I think that gives especially people who want to direct or have a specific major, they are getting very specific instruction as to how things work now and techniques that people use. And I think they're learning practical filmmaking and then taking that and using it in the films that they make. If you're just going to start in the industry and apprentice or work for somebody, you may learn one aspect of filmmaking, but at film school you're going to learn everyone's job. You're going to learn what sound does. You're going to learn about editing and you're going to learn about camera and you're going to learn about production design and acting and all of the disciplines and every aspect of filmmaking. So I think it's a really good place for people to start. So getting out of college, what did you do after you graduated? Well, when I first graduated, since I had gone undergrad to USC, I was I don't know, 21 and instead of getting a job, I sort of put that off. And I went to Aspen, Colorado and went skiing. <laughs> My parents had just spent a lot of money on an education at USC. And they thought I had lost my mind because I just took off to Colorado. However, there I did decide uh, eventually to get back into what I originally wanted to do, which was work in the film business. So I came home and... Then I started the daunting task of trying to find a job, which your first job is very difficult to find, I think, for anybody. My father was a dentist in the valley, in San Fernando Valley, and a lot of the people who came to work for him worked in the industry, in all <laughs> aspects of the industry. So I worked for him chair side, and anytime anyone came in that had anything to do with movies, he would say, this is my daughter, she's looking for a job. <laughs> If you can get her one, that would be fabulous. So I met a lot of people in post-production and sound through my father. However, none of them ever could get me a job at that point. A friend of mine was coming from Texas. A good friend of hers was going to be producing a commercial. And he, they invited me along to hang out on the set of a shoot. At the set, I decided to help out in any way I could as if I was actually working for them. I was interested in everything they were doing. I asked anybody if they needed help. And at the end of the day, the producer came up to me and said, you know, I need an assistant in editorial. And if you're interested, come in tomorrow morning and I'll talk to you about the job. So I went to his office at, at a commercial company called Spun Buggy Productions, which was a company that did <laughs> commercials that were live action, but mostly live action combination animation. Hmm. And they had an in-house assistant editor position and all the editors came freelance and I would, if I got the job, would work for all the editors and all the different commercials or all the different companies that came in at any given time. You had to organize all the different shows and make sure each editor was taken care of. Hmm. So I came into his office the first day. He interviewed me and he said, I have one more test for you and that is – I'm going to go in the other room and I'm going to mess up the color on the television set and I want you to make it perfect. <laughs> and if you pass that test, you have the job. So I went in the other room and I fixed the TV and I guess I did 
perfect color because I got the job and the first job <laughs> he sent me on was to go to the lab and approve prints of a Las Vegas show for Rich Little that they were producing. Rich Little, Nobody wow. in the office wanted to go approve answer prints for the Las Vegas show. So I had to run off to the lab and approve all the prints and get them ready and ship them to Las Vegas for his opening act. So the opening act was Christmas morning or Christmas day, let's say. And I had to ship the prints. So I, Packaged everything up, sent it FedEx. This is my very first assignment. And we all were allowed to have Christmas Day off. So Christmas morning, <laughs> Thankfully. Nine, 9 o'clock in the morning, the producer calls me and says, where is the print? And I said, I don't know. I put it in the package, FedEx, and sent it to Vegas. He goes, well, it's not there. <laughs> and somebody's going to have to fly to Las Vegas and take that print. Oh, no. <laughs> So we did some tracking, and when I got finally got FedEx on the phone, they said to me, if you don't check holiday delivery on the oh. box, it won't get there. <laughs> so I had to fess up to call the producer back and tell him that I hadn't checked holiday box and didn't know that you have to check that on the paperwork. Oh, no. So instead of being fired, he said, okay, that was your first and last mistake. And so I said, okay, I won't do that again, and I'll pay a little more attention. He sent the editor to Las Vegas, and the editor was pleased as punch to take a trip to Vegas on I Christmas bet. Day and deliver the Rich Little Prince. So I survived my first uh, job in the industry. That's funny. Ivan, who we interviewed last time, he started off at a company that did a lot of animation like that as well. I it's the name great. Of the company. It's very good training especially in editorial, because you um, have meticulous work in terms of making dialogue uh, work with picture. It's the, mm -hmm. the dialogue is key. Obviously, you don't have performances to work with, but you have vocal performances to work with. And you cut together tracks first, and then you work on picture, and animators will animate to your track. So it's really good training for learning to edit with sound and making sure that your dialogue has rhythm and, and hmm. you have a good basis for cutting picture, too. Did you always know that you wanted to get into editing, or was that something that came later? No, I mean, in school I really was interested in camera, but uh, it was a little bit, it's a little bit of a chauvinistic end of the business, and you have to be pretty strong and tough. I'm not a really big person, and you have to be able to carry camera cases around, and it takes a certain kind of person to do that. The only other option that I had thought of was um, in the production office. However, typing is not my forte either. <laughs> <laughs> so, And starting out as a secretary, I wasn't so interested in that either. But um, I luckily fell into editorial and couldn't be happier in the storytelling, um, back-end storytelling aspect of filmmaking. And now you don't have to be on the set all day long, too. Which is such a bore. <laughs> Honestly speaking, edit editors don't love the set. It's yeah. too boring. We have control of our own work in the editing room. We don't have control over anything on the set. Yeah. And it's funny because other people come in the editing room and go, God, it's so boring. I can't sit here. I can't do this. Exactly. My brother's wife, she used to work for an ad agency and she would hate going into the cutting room. And where her husband was, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not, not where Nick was in, in particular, but yeah. just it would hate be there, being there because – it was just so boring to her. Like she could only last about five or ten minutes, and then she was like, "Okay, I need to go." <laughs> and we're exactly that way on the set. We're there for five minutes. First of all, nobody wants us there, and they're going, "What is what is editorial here for?" And then something wrong. Yeah, something, <laughs> something's up. And then we can't stand it because there's nothing going on. Yeah, slow as molasses. So after this job, what uh, what came next for you? Well, 
I worked for that company for one year and I could see that I wasn't going to be able to edit commercials there. All of the editors are freelance. Most of the editors and commercials are freelance. And I needed to do some cutting. I felt like I needed to do cutting. So the first thing I did was look for an independent, low-budget feature, which I couldn't find, but I found student films. So I went to AFI and I started cutting other student films. And it turned out I was cutting a film for a guy named Peter Kiewit, and he was in the same <laughs> class as Donald Petrie, who I would later work for. And we all figured out that we were all in this building at the same time cutting little 16-millimeter films at AFI, which was pretty funny. But after I cut the film at AFI, I still had to work. So what I started doing was assistant editing in the day and cutting things for free for people making little short films at night. And that way I could get things for a reel and cut dramatic stuff and work in the daytime. So at first I was working on independent features that were non-union because I wasn't in the union. Mm -hmm. And getting in the union was very difficult at that time. A friend of my dad's, who I had met chairside at the dentist office, <laughs> was Gary Gerlich, and he was head of post-production at Fox. And he said, if there's an opportunity anytime, I will call you if I can get you in the union. But it's difficult. At the time, there was a director strike going on. There were no jobs, and it was very tight at the studio. So he calls one day while I'm working on an independent film, Children of the Corn, assistant editing for Harry <laughs> Karamidis, and he says, I've got a job for you. The movie's called Modern Problems, and we need an apprentice. So I finish up Children of the Corn and go over to Modern Problems, and I start working. And I think the editor was Michael Jablo. And they put me in an extra room, and I had to reconstitute the <laughs> film back into daily roles, which I, after that, never made one of my assistants do ever because it was the most torturous, boring job in the it entire editing horrible. room. If you don't know what that, that basically is, is when you're cutting on film and you make – small trims and little pieces come off the film and bigger pieces come off the film and go into a bin reconstituting is taking all those trims and putting them back in the rolls from which they came and it's just tedious and boring boring work. it's work by numbers so i was in an extra room not really knowing what was going on in the cutting room not being asked my opinion of any of the edits just mm -hmm. on my own there and one day the phone rings and it's a guy from the downstairs coding room and he says, what do you think you're doing taking work away from studio people who work here already? You're not in the union. You're not going to get in the union. And we're going to make sure of that. There's a director strike going on. There's very few jobs in this town. And it scared me to death. Wow. <laughs> so, so I ran to Gary Gerlich's office and he said, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to let you go. This isn't the time. It's not going to work out. You're not going to be able to get your 90 days, which at that time you had to work 90 days on a union film in order to get in the union. So it was a catch-22. That's amazing. So you had to work 90 days on a union show to get in the union, but you couldn't be working on a union show unless you were in the union. That's right. <laughs> Nowadays, you can work 100 days on a non-union show, and then you prove to the union that you've done that by showing them your paycheck. You can get into the union. Mm. After that, you just pay your dues. You can't work as a runner. You have to work as an apprentice or an assistant, and you will get into the union by showing them your pay stubs. So they fired me, and I went off to independent films again. So for a long time, I just worked on independence and cut short films. And then he called again and said, I can get you on a movie called Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> and I said, really, is it going to happen this time? And he said, I made a deal. It's going to be fine. So I went to work <laughs> on a movie called Revenge of the Nerds. And 
They shot in Arizona, and they made me sync all the dailies in Los Angeles in an editing room at Fox all by myself, and I got... 10 to 20,000 feet of film every day because they were shooting two cameras. Oh. And I had to sync it all and code it all and ship it all every night to Arizona all by myself. Actually, oh. at one point I said, could I have some help? And they sent me one of the guys who was a studio guy that had been around Fox for, I don't know, 25, 30 years. And he pretty much sat at a bench and talked to me while I did all the work. <laughs> so... <laughs> That really wasn't worth anything, <laughs> but it was a good experience. And so when the crew came back from Arizona, the first assistant worked with the editor in one room, and I, the director cut that movie also, and I worked for the director. So I actually got to assist someone who was a very good editor, Jeff Canoe, who had cut Ordinary People but also had directed films, and this was um, one of his first major features to direct and I got to assist him and while he cut and he was a very good editor so he ended up being quite a mentor to me and I learned a lot about editing just sitting there holding trims Mm -hmm. putting them on a bin he didn't ever make me reconstitute them I could just stand (laughs) there but I knew where they all were and I could hand each piece to him he started to let me cut music and do some sequences for him so I really got a different sense of the system versus just sitting in a room reconstituting or doing assistant work that didn't mean anything. If you want to relive the Revenge of the Nerds uh, sinking of dailies, you know, they're doing the new Revenge of the Nerds now. Jeff Harlicker oh, that would be great. is working on that, so we could give him a call. and uh... I, could a, <laughs> I could get a job. That would be so great. I know of course, the... sinking film now is, is pretty non-existent. Say, yeah. And that's one of the questions I'll, I'll lead into, which is uh, you worked early on, obviously, cutting film. And then what was the first film you did when, when you moved over to the Avid? I worked in electronic editing when I was doing commercials and mm-hmm. press kits. So I worked in offline systems where we had two decks basically with a little controller that would let you record a section, lay it down, and then record the next section after that. And there was nothing called nonlinear editing. It was very linear. You had to lay down each piece. And if you made a mistake, you'd have to go back and redo all the edits that you had done. So I worked in that arena all the time while I was assisting because in that at that time i started cutting trailers and tv spots and so that i could always be cutting and i wasn't just assisting all the time i was editing on the side i was doing little jobs for people so what happened was i was freelancing at a videotape house and two producers came in with their television show and said we'd like this cut down for a presentation for the network first producer to come in was Jordan Kerner and he came in and worked for me for about three days and then he had an operation and he had to leave and Mm. then his partner came in John Avnet so I got to work with both of the partners in one company within one week and they said to me we're gonna do a tv movie but we're not gonna cut it on film we're gonna cut it on video and we don't know anybody who cuts on video except for you so we'd like you to cut this movie but you're gonna have to get the job yourself the director has never cut on video and you're going to have to meet with him and convince him that you can cut the movie. And I said, <laughs> okay. So I found out that the director was Gil Cates. Now, Gil Cates had been president of the Director's Guild. So the advantage that I had there was that I could call mm. anybody I knew who was in the Director's Guild and say, would you mind calling Gil Cates and tell him that I can cut his movie? So I did that. I called three producers and two directors that I knew and said, please call Gil Cates, and they did. So by the time I got the interview and I went to meet him, he said, just, you can have the job. Just tell people to quit calling me and telling me that you can do this. (laughs) 
But <laughs> Gil was great. And he said, I have one question for you. And I said, what's that? And he said, you know the producers really well. And I'm the director of this picture. So when we're shooting the movie and one of the producers comes up to you and says, I'd like to see how it's going. Could you show me some of this footage? What are you going to say? <laughs> and I said, I'm going to tell them that I can't show anything until you give me permission to show the, the, them the footage. And he said, that's the right answer and you have the job. <laughs> and from then on, it was an important lesson to all in editorial to know that who it is you're working for directly. You're working in, especially in features and in films, you're working for the director and the director wants to know that you're going to protect his movie at all costs. So that first show, what was that show called? That video show that uh, Gil Cates did? That was called My First Love, and that show was done on the montage, not the mm. Avid. So I learned that technology first. Montage was a very basic nonlinear system. Was that the tape one with all the beta tapes? Yes. Yes, you had, yeah. You had 16 beta decks, and they all had to queue up in order to show you each section. You could only show like yeah. five minutes at a this time. This was crazy for anyone that doesn't know what the montage was, but it was – I worked on a movie, one movie with the montage, and it was – you had your, your computer system, and then in a separate room you had these racks of beta decks. And when you had your dailies transferred, they would transfer the dailies to like eight or ten tapes – and so you'd put in the dailies for that for those particular scenes into the decks, and you'd go to cut, and it would randomly access the different decks to play it back in real time. It was such a convoluted and complicated system. It that really was. It seems so ancient when you look at it now. It even seems more ancient than like film, because at least film is like you you can see it, you can touch it. This is like yeah, that technology lasted. And, film technology lasted for years and years and years because it really was a good technology. And the montage lasted a couple of years because it was just a bunch of decks that always broke all the time. <laughs> it was crazy. But then um, I everybody was moving towards a system called the Avid, and I got the opportunity to cut a pilot for Wes Craven. Um, he was the producer on that. And um, Michael Dinner was the mm. director. And it was the first show that I did on The Avid. The line producer was a friend of mine, Stuart Besser. And he said, I know you can do this. You'll figure it out as you go, which is exactly what I did. I figured it out as I went. And the system was new. And they were still working on things. So you could actually call Avid and tell them this is how <laughs> it would if – if you did this, it would work a lot better. And that was great because it was – easier for editors to learn while they were still developing the software. So then when you did that show, did you then go back to a film show after that? I did. I went back to film and it was difficult in terms of managing footage. I mean, I worked on Heatwave, which was about the Watts riots and it was a lot of footage. They shot mm. three cameras every day. And even though it was a movie of the week, it still had hundreds of thousands of feet of film that you had to go through and work with. And I could see that the Avid had such an advantage in terms of working with massive amounts of footage that you weren't physically exhausted from putting rolls up and looking <laughs> through rolls and rolls to find the pieces that you need. I still make select rolls, which means I go through all the footage and pull out the very best pieces and put them into select rolls. That's my method, and it's probably left over from working in film. It's the only way that I could physically manage all that material on film. I would go through the footage and pull out the very best pieces and put 
split them into roles and then use those and sort of save the outtakes. And, and, and I would often have to go back into the original roles for a trim. However, all the good pieces had already, I'd already pulled them out. And I still mm. do that on the Avid. When I first go through the material, I look for the very best pieces and I make select roles, especially on scenes that are really big and have lots of footage. Mm-hmm. After uh, the Heat Wave movie, John Avnet asked me to do Fried Green Tomatoes, and so we did Fried Green Tomatoes on film. And then we did another picture called The War with Kevin Costner and Elijah Wood. And that picture we cut on film. However, halfway through the movie, we only shot one half at a time. Kevin Costner wasn't available, so we shot the first half without him and with his double. And the second half we shot a few months later. So in the Hmm. interim, in the meanwhile, we found out about a new machine called the Avid, which I had already used, but people were starting to use on features. And we mm. um, loaded the whole show, but not the dailies, the whole cut show onto the Avid and started to make changes on mm. the Avid just to see how it worked and how we would work together, the director and I, how we would work together on that equipment and if it would change our our process, which it didn't. And so we were glad to find out that didn't change the process at all. Mm. It was just another tool which helped manage the material and helped us work. So on the next film that came after the war was Up Close and Personal. And on that film, we decided to do the entire show. And that's the first show that we worked that's together the first on. first time we met. That's right. Because I knew Karen before that. And then uh, we'd worked on a montage show. Which so was, had uh, you worked on an Avid show before that? No, that was my first Avid show. And I just learned from John... John Axelrad was the Avid assistant, and I was a film assistant with Karen. And uh, so, how many years ago was that? Eleven. That was ninety-five. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) A long time. Having worked together for eleven years, when we first started out, you were my assistant, but now you're my associate, and quite (laughs) a big help on the films. not just in the assisting aspect, which you run absolutely perfectly and know exactly how it should be done, but in terms of editing, Patrick often cuts large sequences, especially music sequences and action sequences that um, are sort of cumbersome and I can't always get to. So it's great to have somebody that's an associate and can um, speak the same language, talk the same dialogue yeah. without even talking sometimes. Yeah, well, you know, when you work together for so long, it kind of just becomes secondhand. You kind of just, you say a couple words and you go, yeah, yeah, I got it. I know, yeah, I know, you I don't know. have to say a whole long sentence. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's strange like that. So what's, uh, what's the most difficult thing about cutting a feature uh, for you? Um, my least favorite part is cutting dailies only mm-hmm. because I feel like, I am in a learning process and um, I really just am there to get to know the footage and get to know what we've got to work with. I like the director's cut much better because I enjoy working with somebody and helping them realize their vision and helping them translate all their ideas and, and, and then giving my ideas and participating in that, in that and building the story from there. Mm-hmm. So that's my favorite part. And then the next least favorite part is having the studio and the producers come in because that's always political and things change and they're trying to get up to speed as to what movie we have and trying to change it or making some impression on it. And mm. I'm a, I work for directors and I like to work for directors. So that is a little less fun than working specifically for 10 weeks with them in a room. Yeah. Is that, is that difficult then when you come on a show like uh, Dupree recently, you came on as a second editor uh, where the show was already 
pretty much what what state was the show in when you came in and how how was that working compared to starting from the beginning it was a little more difficult because they had already started shooting for about i don't know seven weeks or so so there was an editor there he had a relationship previous with the directors and there were two directors uh the Russo brothers. And so I had to find a place in that cutting room. I had to find where I was going to fit in the process. And we all had to rework out who was doing what and who cuts what and um, how we communicate with the directors and then eventually with the producers and with the studio. It did work out um, fine in the long run. It's just that when you're working with somebody else that you don't know, you have to find their rhythms and figure out who's going to cut what. And mm-hmm. in the end, we both ended up cutting most of the scenes um, and recutting most of the scenes. So probably our work is all over. In other cases, I've worked with other editors where each of you take a scene and you stay with those scenes, specifically all the way through the movie. You don't you don't trade them back and forth. Mm-hmm. But in this case, we did. We traded back and forth and we... Um, cut all of the material both of us i worked in a show where the director just would pit the editors against each other that's awful it was horrible <laughs> i've never had that experience but thank goodness and just and big editors i won't mention the show or the names but but he would go to one editor and say that's really great let's give it to this guy and see what he can do with it that's horrible and just that is really mean it was i've never horrible. experienced that but i don't think that would be very fair to the editors or their work and or it not much fun. respect for the other for each other for each other's work. it was a it was not a very fun situation to be in yeah. it was very tense and uh, makes for not not a very good working situation no and that's the other thing about the you know jobs where you walk in i can't usually bring my assistants and it doesn't make for my favorite type of cutting room i mean obviously i like the people that i know and i want to bring my group onto right. a show because we like each other we get along and in these situations where i'm coming on to a show that's already established i have to Get along with who's ever there, yeah. whether I like it or not. <laughs> and you know, editing. There's very there's some odd people in editing. Editing yeah. tracks the strange. You know, you never know who you're going to meet in a, in a show. Personalities. Yes. Uh, yeah. It takes a strange personality to sit in a dark room for long hours. You that's know, true. What does that 14. say about us? I know. I don't know. Never trust a tan editor. Ah, that's me right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're you're not working right now. So yeah. Get some time off. You got your first uh, feature with John Avnet because you had cut his previous tv movie tv movie that we actually won some awards it was before there was there's there were awards called the cable ace awards and we won for the movie heatwave we won um i won editing best editing and there was quite a few other awards that were won for that show and so john came to me and said i'm going to direct a feature it's called fried green tomatoes and would you cut it for me and i was thrilled because the only way you're going to get moved up to features is if a director sticks his neck out for you and says, I want this person. Otherwise, the studio will shove down someone with extensive credits down their first-time director's throat and make them hire them. So it's really difficult to make the leap from cutting, let's say, movies of the week or television to features or changing any direction from from features to television. You have to have somebody who's willing to stick up for you and stick out their neck and say, Mm -hmm. this person can do that job. And what a great first feature. I mean, to get that as your first feature is like... Very lucky. Fried Green Tomatoes was a great, great movie. And they had developed it for a very long time. They had worked on Mm. the script for years. And it showed. It showed. It wasn't just thrown together at the last minute. And and it it became a beautiful project. People often ask me, what are some of the best and worst experiences I've had in my professional career? Could you tell me like one of the, the worst things that happened to you or worst things, experiences, and then one of the best ones as well? Am I allowed to say those? 
the well, within reason, I mean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's some that, you know, were horrible, but I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Probably because the people who were there will know it was them. Ones you're willing to admit, too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the last show I told my story about dropping rolls of film into coffee. Oh, yeah, exactly. Well, I've done that, too. <laughs> Um, I've dropped rolls of negative down La Cienega Boulevard, <laughs> uh, things like that. I mean, those were, those were pretty bad. Well, I mean, there's stories where I've been put into uncomfortable positions. Like when I did get that movie of the week with Gil Cates mm-hmm. and eventually the producer, Jordan Kerner came in and said, I think that Gil should step aside and we're going to cut the movie ourselves. Gil had said to me about a half an hour earlier that if I walk out of this room, the editor walks with me and I was in a complete <laughs> pickle because they had both put me in the middle and said, I need you to be here for me and I need you to be here with me. And so I said um, to both of them, I don't think this is fair of you guys to do this to me. And I think you need to work out your problems. And they actually did. Oh, wow. I figured either way I was going to be fired. So (laughs) it didn't hurt to lose. When we were on Austin Powers, I was pregnant. I had come on to that film also after they were done shooting. All the footage was there and they didn't care for the first editor or his work, so they decided to change editors, which happens, and they hired me to come in. So I came onto the movie and started working with the director, Jay Roach, and then um, the star, Mike Myers, came in, and he started to work on the picture, too. He was the writer of the material, so he knew the material well. So every day we would all sit down together and sift through the jokes and work on the jokes. And I was really pretty pregnant at that time. I started out about six months pregnant on that. And by the time we were done, I was having the baby and the movie was done. But every Friday night, I remember having to recut I Touch Myself (laughs) with Mike. And I would say... I'll stay, just get me food, and I will stay as long as you want. Every Friday having to listen to I Touch Myself I touch over myself. and over and over. The other thing about that movie, which was really funny, is that Mike was always on a diet, and he would cook bacon and hot dogs in a little toaster oven every day, and the smell just made me sick. I was pregnant, and all the smells were just disgusting coming from the room. And he ate <laughs> bacon and hot dogs every day. It was torture. That was there were some so many funny stories from that from that show. Um, but I I remember when I first met Mike, and I was going to ask you about this. I don't know if you know what happened in, in the room, but I walked down the hallway. I'd never I first day in the job, haven't met Mike. I know Debbie. Uh, I walk by Debbie's door. It's closed. I go to my room. As I'm walking there, Mike comes down the hallway, gives me a nod. Meet Mike. Hello. Um, he walks up to the door to Debbie's door. He pulls up his shirt. He pulls out a whipped cream can and puts whipped cream on his nipples, opens the door, and then walks in and closes the door. <laughs> and I just went, what just happened? And I don't, I don't know what know. happened on the other side of that door. Well, I don't even remember. He, you know, I, <laughs> My back was to the door in that room, so I'm not exactly sure. Yeah. But he might have been, you know, showing. I've noticed ever since then, the ba- your back has never been to the door. Exactly. Never <laughs> again. Never again. He was probably... Making up the next gag that we were going to shoot. We, we shot extra footage on that movie. Yeah, the the uh, the extra gag about uh, El Segundo. Yeah, <laughs> that's a whole. Well, other that's thing. another story. So when we were working on Austin Powers, we started the process of the preview process. But the thing about Austin Powers was that it was a movie heavily laden with visual effects, even though it was a low budget movie. So Patrick was brought on. 
to work on the Avid and do all the visual effects. And with the Avid at that time, you had to render the effects, which oh took God. hours and hours and hours. So he would come in at night, work on an effect, and let it render for hours till we come in the next day, and there was the effect. Now, these effects were kind of blurry and kind of okay. They were pretty elementary. And in order to preview them, we had to send them out to a company and have them <laughs> transferred back to film, which was like a kinescope. And those looked horrendous. Uh-huh. So we cut all that stuff into our first cut and took the movie to the South Bay, a town called El Segundo. El Segundo. Remember and, El Segundo. And we previewed the movie to, in El Segundo. Now, the audience was a little ethnic and a little um, young teenager males, which is the toughest audience to preview to anyways, especially for a comedy. And the movie started, and they didn't understand it. They didn't get it, and they thought it was the weirdest thing they had ever seen. They all heckled at the screen, walked out of the theater, and we got 40. I think it was a 40. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Mike was devastated. He was beside himself. So the next day in the morning, we get to the cutting room in the morning, and it says, Remember El Segundo on the, <laughs> on the bulletin board. So we were never allowed to forget that we were to make this movie funny no matter what happened. And then Mike even, I remember the next preview, he was still so upset about El Segundo, and we were working on uh, the end of the movie and redoing the end, he decided to do try a different approach with the end and do a uh, uh, what happened to them, where are they now ending, where they had That's each right. character and what happened to them. And the funniest thing I remember was he made Dr. Evil the manager of a big boys in El Segundo. Yeah, that's right. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was so pissed he about El so Segundo. Pissed. And he never made it in the movie. We obviously reshot the ending and, and did a very funny repeat on the penis blocking uh, sequence. However, that yeah. would have been really funny. Now, that's another thing that seems interesting about the Austin Powers movies is that the way that uh, they seem to be shot and the way that the, the, the new scenes that were added were kind of formulated from jokes that worked. Um, in in the mo- in the body of the movie, absolutely. But they had to top those jokes, otherwise they right. weren't, weren't worth putting in. If you're repeating a joke, you have to make it funnier than the first time you heard it. But it works, and and often that would become the end of the film. Yeah, the first one, the second one as well was with the uh, the rocket, the rocket, the penis rocket, absolutely. <laughs> Woody Harrelson. No matter what, if it's a penis joke, it's funny. That's right. <laughs> now you've cut drama. Horror, action, comedy, but the vast majority of the films you've cut have been comedies. So do you like cutting comedies? What's, what, what do you like about uh, working on, on comedies as opposed to other genres? Well, I like the other genres. I tend to get pigeonholed, which everyone does in Hollywood, mm-hmm. because they've done more comedies. And so everybody refers to me as a female comedy editor, a romantic mm-hmm. comedy editor. But what's great about working on comedies is it makes for a great working environment. We're constantly... As you know, thinking of jokes, making <laughs> yeah. things funny, um, finding music that's funny, um, telling jokes ourselves, and working with very funny directors and very funny people all the time. And that makes for a really great working environment. Um, Dennis Dugan is one of my favorite people and a director that we've both worked with on comedies. And and it just makes for a great working environment. Just a funny, funny guy. Yeah. I could tell a dozen stories about Dennis but one of the funniest ones that happened to us was was it national? I think it was national security. We were an action film, actually. Yeah, action, action comedy, action comedy. We were going going to dailies on the set, and then on the set, 
they had a dailies truck and it was kind of this trailer very long where they had a screen on one end and a, and a projector on the other and they'd we watch dailies every day and this particular day they were having electrical issues and the power kept going out in the screening room while we were watching while we were watching so we'd have to get back up start it up again and go again so two or three times it went out and the last time it went out the lights go out and the lights come on and dennis has his pants around his ankles and his shirt over his head and goes debbie you're so fast (laughs) (laughs) he's so bad he embarrassed me so many times everybody was laughing it was so funny but dennis is a really fun guy to work for and a very funny man makes for good comedies Another funny guy that has something in common with Dennis is is Donald Petrie. They both were actors first before they became directors. What is it about working with a director who's been an actor? Is that an advantage that you see uh, working with someone like that? I do. I, I think that they are keyed into performance so well. It makes for such a great um, situation when we work together the 10 weeks of the director's cut because – they're focused on the actors, they're focused on the performance, and focused on making the jokes work within those performances, and they're both really good at it, and they've been doing it for a long time, and especially since they were actors themselves, they can pick out false acting moments within seconds of watching them, so they're really they're really great at that. Now, we interviewed Donald for the podcast, actually, and he has so many great stories from all the films he's worked on. How to Lose a Guy was your first experience with Donald. Can you talk about the dynamics of that? Because what was interesting about that film is... Being the first time that you worked them, it it was interesting that he let you stay here in Los Angeles, let us stay here in Los Angeles, and he went to go shoot on location. Because a lot of times the director will want you to uh, to be on location with him, especially if he's never worked, worked with you. you before. Absolutely. When we first worked for Dennis Dugan, I um, said to Dennis, I can't do your film because I can't go to Vancouver. I've just had a son, and he's a you know three-year-old kid, and I'm not going to leave him. And he said, oh, you have to do my movie, and you have to come to Vancouver. I've never worked with you before, and, I, and you don't know my choices, and you don't know what I like, and we need to sit in dailies together every day and talk about how the movie's going to be cut together. And so he convinced me to go to Vancouver, which was just a miserable experience because I've decided that, you know, Griffin should come with us and then he didn't like it there. <laughs> and then he flew home and then I would fly home every weekend. So it was very difficult the first time, but I actually got what his choices were and understood him mm-hmm. pretty quickly. So then from then on, I was saying to people that I'm not going to go on location, and Donald Petrie had no issues with that at all. When the first movie we worked on was How to Lose a Guy, and I said to him, I'm not going to be able to go to New York when you shoot this movie. And he said, that's no problem. We'll talk every day. We'll, you'll send me DVDs and of the cuts, and we'll look at them together. And it actually worked out fine. And then eventually, as you know, we started to upload um, scenes onto the internet for him. He he loves technology, and he was very interested in seeing stuff sent to him that way. And now that's all we do. He goes and mm-hmm. shoots movies on location. We stay at home and send him cuts constantly. Uh, if he needs a scene immediately, we can send it right away. It's much faster than sending a DVD overnight. We can get it to him really quickly. And remember we made him a little birthday message and oh, <laughs> recorded right. that and uploaded it oh, too. Oh, God, what was that on? Just my luck we um, can upload anything within moments of creating it. Yeah. So it's really worth, I I don't see the necessity of having to sit with someone in dailies um, and learn their sensibility or learn what they're interested in. It doesn't seem to matter anymore. With the technology that changing so much, that dynamic is really changing of where the editor needs to be. And there's a lot more opportunity for the editor to be wherever the editor wants to be. 
so you work with directors who were actors. Uh, are there many cases where the actors will come into the cutting room as well? Well, if the actors are producers or writers on the show, they will be in the cutting room. For example, Mike Myers was there because he created a lot of that comedy and um, was in the cutting room every day. One of my favorite experiences of having an actor in the cutting room is when Robert Redford came on Up Close and Personal. Oh, Bob. Bob. Uh, <laughs> as a child, my favorite films were Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid and The Sting. And if there was ever a movie star that I was enamored with, it would be Robert Redford. So we were told Bob was coming in in the morning to look at some footage. So we were ready, and I came in very well done up, all ready, (laughs) primped and ready for Bob. And then he was going to come at 5, I think, and watch the movie and then come in the cutting room afterwards. And then eventually Robert Redford showed up in the cutting room about 11 o'clock at night and I was a wilted flower. I was just not <laughs> ready for him anymore. And so when he did come in, we had a wonderful time. And he stayed about a half an hour and we talked about his character. But his character in terms of the movie and the story and how it worked. And he's a wonderful filmmaker and, and just part of the process. So it was definitely a good experience. He's one of those guys that there's only a handful of actors that have such presence and are such icons. When you meet them in person, oh, you just he, go, oh He my took my God. breath away. I definitely went, oh, when I saw him. <laughs> He's one of those so guys. incredible. That, there's only a handful of those guys. That's and, true. But, you know, for me and Dave, I'd have to say that that uh, Michelle Pfeiffer yeah. was a little more exciting. You guys are waiting for Michelle <laughs> to come in. And then also, also on that show, the writers came in, and they are well-known writers. Their names are Joan Didion and John Dunn. John's passed away now, but um, both of them came in and sat for a whole day. John Avnet had the writers come in and sit, which is very unusual to have the writers come in and sit with the editor and do a cut of the movie and work um, with the material as if it was their own. And it was a great experience, and they're really smart story people, and I actually ended up in their book about that movie. They wrote a whole book because the experience was so crazy, and they wrote about the day they came to the cutting room, so I was in their book, which was pretty cool. That's great. When you first attack a scene, do you attack a comedy scene differently than you would attack, say, a horror scene or a drama scene or or, or, or something along those lines? Definitely with comedy. I think you're looking for timing and the jokes within the scene right away, even though it may be a dramatic scene that's going to build up to a comedy a setup, let's say, for a comedy sequence later. But I think that the timing is different. And with the drama, your pacing and performance choices are all specific to that genre, too. In horror, I think that there there are different ways of editing each of those kinds of scenes. And your approach to them is based on what type of story you're telling. I don't think you can use the same techniques for each. At least I don't do that. Comedy is, it, I think it's difficult because everyone's sense of humor is slightly different. Do you find that a challenge when you have a scene that you're cutting that's a comedy scene and you're trying to figure out where, where the jokes are? The thing about that is that I really look at the director and see where he's coming from. And it is mm. very helpful to know them before and what kind of jokes they tell and what kind of comedy they're interested in telling. Because it is their vision and they usually do have a specific type of comedy. Dennis Dugan's comedy is completely different than Donald Petrie's. Mm-hmm. And I understand both of them and think they're both funny and can tell jokes in both those ways. But I think 
that that's my job is to help enhance and make the their comedy shine. So I really approach it from what I think they would think is funny. And the Russo brothers, their comedy was completely different than Donald's mm-hmm. or Dennis's. So I think you know you have to look at the director and see what they think is funny. And if you have gotten to the point that you've been hired, they definitely know that you get what they like. Otherwise, you know, you wouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. So is there anything you haven't done uh, that you'd like to do in the future regarding the business? Future, I'd say I'd like to continue to work on great films, continue to work in comedies, but I'd like to change and work in dramas more. It's difficult because you get pigeonholed and people want you to come in and help them with the comedies because you've done it and have been successful at it. But it's great to change genres and it's great to work in different areas because it keeps your editing skills up. As I was saying, I don't approach them the same and I think that it's great to to move from genre to genre and work with different directors and work in different styles. But it's hard to convince uh, studios that you can do different stuff. They're not, they're they're interested in you just doing one thing and the same with directors. So um, I'm sure that's the same challenge that everybody runs up against. And with anything, if you're an assistant and you want to uh, be editing, you get that, you know, well, you're, you're seen as an assistant or if you're a, a, a camera person when the person meets you and you really want to be producing well they still see you as the camera person right? i know i always say you should save a bunch of money if you're going to change jobs in the <laughs> business within the business because there's going to be a point where you're going to have to be out of work for a while just to get um, people to notice you in a different role yeah it's really hard yeah well thanks so much for talking with us oh, it's been you're really welcome, great Patrick. at your beautiful house thanks for inviting us in thanks And we'll talk to you again sometime in the future and see what you're up to. Great. Thank you. And uh, everybody out there, thanks for listening. Be sure to stop by the webpage at filmediting.com. Go to the Frapper map. There's a link for the Frapper map. And leave a pin in the map uh, telling me where you live. I love that you guys are doing that. Also, go to Podcast Alley. There's a link there on the page as well. And vote for the podcast if you have a chance. It helps uh, get some visibility for us. And uh, that's it for now. Uh, We'll see you again soon. Thanks. Thanks.